Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is June the 4th, 2020. This is episode 2,673 of the Survival Podcast. And it's the promised show. I said I would do this for you on Tuesday, and then I mentioned again yesterday, Wednesday, that I would be doing this show today. It is called The Time to Get Out of the Cities Has Long Since Come. I would say it's long since come and go, but for those who have not yet heeded the call, I think that this should be the final nails in the coffin of any belief that living in large urban areas is a good idea. And I do include the urban suburbs. I put out a tweet yesterday on Twitter. It was, uh, I guess, where else would you put out a tweet other than on Twitter? But it, it was pretty popular and retweeted an awful lot. And basically I said that um, when we when we look at cities today, Here's the exact quote. Every benefit in a large city is nothing but a false belief, especially in 2020 when people can work from anywhere, gather information from anywhere, and communicate from everywhere, anywhere. The city is basically the slaughterhouse, and the urban suburbs are the CAFOs. And yeah, you might be fattened up at the CAFO and sent to the slaughterhouse and, and not actually slaughtered. Um, the way we run cities today, the way we run society today, cities are just the highest form of it, is more like a dairy farm uh, than it is like a meat operation. Because our, our leaders um, manage us a lot like the Maasai in Africa manage their cattle. If you've never heard of the Maasai, they're an indigenous people in, uh, in, in the southern continent of Africa, very ancient people. And they are a cattle herding people. They herd cattle and they keep cattle and they, they're, uh, they're nomads. They move around an awful lot. And their entire wealth is measured by their cattle. And they are far from vegetarians. These guys aren't vegans or vegetarians. They drink a lot of milk. In fact, they drink a lot of milk and a lot of blood. They actually will uh, slightly wound a cow and bleed it. They don't take enough blood to actually hurt the cow. You know, They're a little kinder than our government is. And then they milk the cow, and they mix the blood and milk together, and they get a full meal. And that way they don't lose their wealth. This is a real, I'm not making this up. You can freaking Google this shit. This is how the Maasai live. It's almost like they wrote the playbook for managing a state. Now, these guys aren't statists. They're, I would say the Maasai are true anarchists. They live in a tribal society, and they, they don't bother anybody, and they, they run their own world and just want to be left alone. But that's a, a very apt description of the city life. And again, it's Western civilization. It's the tax system. You milk and bleed the cow. You make sure you don't take too much. And you don't slaughter the cow because then you wouldn't have the cow as a producer anymore. And you'd lose your wealth. So your wealth to your government is its ability to print money by borrowing money from itself with you as the collateral to pay itself back on your labor. And you're mortgaged, and your kids are mortgaged, and your grandkids are mortgaged, and when you have great-grandkids, if you don't have them already, their futures will be mortgaged as well. And there's really no place in the world that that can be fully escaped today. But there are degrees of it. And my assertion for you today is the more urban your life, the more in that system you are. In fact, the entire reason the system 
of large-scale cities exists is for that system to function. And you might think I'm crazy. Even if you've listened to me for a long time, you might be thinking, it, it, it's done happened. Jack's been watching these riots, and he's been watching this COVID stuff, and they made him shelter in place. I didn't shelter in place. I went wherever the hell I wanted, just so you know. Anyway, he went over the deep end. You know, he's on keto for a year. He lost all this weight. He was looking good. He must have broke down, ate some ice cream, had a sugar embolism in his brain, and now he's gone nuts. No. If you give me a fair listen today, by the time we are done, you will become convinced that cities exist for the purpose of a few controlling the many. That is why they exist. It is the reason they are central to the planning of all government authority. And it's a reason there's been a, a general distrust between what my old friend, my old late friend Toby Hemingway had to say about the Hill people and the field people. The field people were really the city people. Large-scale agriculture, up until a very modern times, was really something that was integrated right into cities, especially the ancient cities, like the cities of Egypt. The two went hand in hand, and that kind of extended, and in, 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 in the, the people in the flatlands, the people in the cities, and the people in the hills always didn't quite get along. And the, and the, the more you lived in the hills, and understand the hills aren't necessarily... Hills, they just often actually are hills. The more you lived off the land, the more you understood that the deer was not your enemy who ate your crops. Rather, the deer was your sustenance. The less you needed the city, and therefore, the more you were looked at with animosity by those in the city. And the more the people in the city would point to you and blame you for the lack of the things that the people in the city had. And gee, ain't nothing really changed. Exactly what it means to live in the hills or live in the city has changed, but the playbook that this is used from. Um, I talked about this recently in, in a, a recent episode. I tried to find it so I can link to it. I can't figure out which episode it was, but I, I, I really pissed some people off on social media because I compared the cities to ticks, uh, ticks that were a parasite on the face of planet Earth. Just like a big tick on your face sucking your blood. In this case, a tick you can't get off. And, and, and a lot of people thought that I was directly attacking the people that live in those cities. I'm not. Those people aren't the problem. Those people are a natural result of being treated in an unnatural way. Human beings are not supposed to live with millions of people crammed into a few hundred square miles. We're not supposed to do that. We didn't do that for the majority of our existence We didn't do that. I just want you to think about something. There's places you can go like the Great Smoky Mountains or some of the western national parks where there's bears. Especially where there's bears, you'll see a sign that says what? Do not feed the animals. Do not feed the bears. Still a lot of city folk come around and feed those bears. Now, I'm not picking on city folk here. I'm just This is an analogy. In this case, the city folk and the country folk are the bears themselves. Now, if you remember, way back in the early 80s, there was a video you could get when VHS was kind of a relatively new thing, and it was called Faces of Death. And it was a bunch of different people dying in different gruesome graphic ways. It was pretty horrific for the 1980s. Today, I don't know if it would turn many heads. It was one of a guy that tried to 
lasso an alligator, pulled him in the water and ate his ass. There's another one of a guy um, that parachuted in and an alligator ate him. He landed in the water by accident and an alligator ate him. Um, there was a lot of really nasty things in it. But one of them, there's a, a guy, he's feeding grizzly bears bread. And you hear his wife say something like, Harry, leave the bears alone. And, and, and soon thereafter, you see a very large grizzly bear running away with Harry's leg in his mouth. And occasionally in the true wilderness, a bear will attack humans. But generally, bears do not attract, uh, attack humans. It's not that common. It's not that common. The biggest thing that people do in bear country to avoid bears is they'll do things like wear a bear bell. Now, a bear bell isn't a magic bell that if you ring it, a bear is afraid of it. It just, when you walk, it makes noise. Because when you're walking in these, you know, especially like in some of the areas in the northwest in Alaska, the, these places, you walk really quiet because of what the, how moist the ground is and the lichens and stuff like that. So people wear a bell. And most of the time, not all the time, certainly if there's cubs around, there's always exceptions. But most of the time, if a bear knows you're coming... A bear goes the other way. They don't want a confrontation with you. They want to avoid you. You represent a danger. So as long as there's a way out, they take it. So I said, I, I, I live and grew up in Pennsylvania. There were a lot of bears, black bears in the woods. Black bears are not as dangerous as grizzlies. But they certainly can kill your ass, and occasionally it happens. But you almost never saw a bear when you were out in the woods. Didn't matter if you were hunting bears or hunting blackberries or hunting grouse. You just very you would see sign, you'd see bear shit, you'd see logs that were torn apart. And the only thing capable of doing it would have been a bear. I remember bow hunting one time and watching a bear walk through the woods and he was clawing trees and stuff and he kind of stood up on the tree I was in. I was thinking, you start coming up this tree, you're gonna get an arrow on your forehead. But it was an amazing experience. Why? Because it's not normal to see a bear. Bears behave like bears as long as you leave them in their natural environment, which does not involve a guy named Harry feeding them bread. What happens when too many Harrys feed the grizzly bears bread? They, it's not they become dependent. That's, that's the myth. People use this analogy and say this shows how bad welfare is. Because the grizzly bear that you feed bread will go out tomorrow and pull a salmon out of the stream. He does not lose his ability to hunt salmon. He'll still do it. No, but he stops acting like a bear. He's a feral animal, a wild animal. He becomes only halfway domesticated, and that makes him dangerous. See, a domesticated animal is generally not very dangerous. And any behaviors they have that might be somewhat dangerous, they're predictable. So if you know how to, so you look at something like a horse that's domesticated. A horse can and it will kill you, and, and can happen. And people get hurt by horses. But in general, if you know how to work with horses, you can do it safely because once domesticated, that animal's behavior is dramatically predictable. A wild horse is, is almost no danger at all. Unless you go out and mess with it, it will run away from you. But a half-domesticated horse, halfway domesticated, is dangerous. And a halfway domesticated horse around a person that doesn't know horses is really dangerous. That's a city. Halfway domesticated humans that are supposed to be feral. We're going to talk about that more in just a minute. Before we do, we'll start out with a quote of the day. 
because this has a lot to do with why people are in cities in the first place. This is by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he said, The desire of gold is not for gold. It is for the means of freedom and benefit. Of course, we don't want gold for the sake of gold. Of course, of course gold is money. Money is gold type of thing. So when we work for money, we don't actually want money. We want what money buys us. We want freedom because we have money. And we want the benefit of wealth. That's what we want. Well, what does that really look like? What does that look like for most people? I've talked about this before. The people that are, you know, the multi-billionaires that are still doing more. And the people that are already in high government office that are seeking more power. They're all sociopaths. They're all psychopaths. Because the average person, if I was Jeff Bezos, and I'm worth a trillion dollars on paper anyway, and I said, hey, Tim, I like you. Here's a million dollars. After Tim got up off the floor from having half a heart attack and realized this was a true thing, and, I, and I'm not pulling his leg, and he's getting a million dollars, he'd be like, thank you, Jeff Jack Bezos. Right? And I said, you know what? I really appreciate the way you said thank you. I'm going to make it $10 million. Tom hits the floor again. Gets up and goes, $10 million, holy shit, thank you. You know what, Tom, I like the cut of your chin. Let's make it $100 million. Now there's a point where if Tom believes me, and Tom's not a sociopath, he says, you know what, go give money to somebody else. That's enough. And most people, if you gave them $100 million, after they set up their little life the way they want it, they would spend a lot of their life giving money away. They might be smart about it and learn how to do things like the rich do, like set up a foundation so that you can give away a certain amount of money every year and never run out of money. But they would try to do good in the world with it. They wouldn't go out and say, gee, I want to go open up a business and suffer for another 10 years to build that business up so I can have a billion dollars. Because at a point they'd get to that they would say, this, is, this gives me everything I want. You know, Garth Brooks when he retired the first time, and he's kind of popped around here and there, but it ain't for money. It's because he likes to perform. But he basically said when he retired, he said, I have more money than I can spend, more money than my kids can spend, and more money than my grandkids can spend. Why am I going to keep doing this? And people thought it was arrogant. It was an innately human thing to do. Why am I going to keep living this life that destroys so many people? I've watched so many people around me destroy themselves in it. When I already have everything I could ever want. And going and getting more won't help anybody. And if it did help anybody, it would only help me. And if I want to help other people, i got tons of ways I can do that now. Maybe I should just go off and be happy. That's what this quote's about. You don't want money for the sake of money. You want money, gold, for what it will buy. And what you want to buy in general, and people say money can't buy happiness, they are full of shit. There was a show called Big Bang Theory. And, and, and somebody said something like, money can't buy happiness, and one character, Raj, said, I, I disagree. Because money can buy a jet ski, and have you ever seen anybody on a jet ski not smiling? You, 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 know, you can't buy happiness if you're just a miserable person. But you can set up a life where you can spend most of your time being happy pretty well if you have enough money to do so. What does this have to do with cities? Well... 
we'll get to this as we go through this today, but the main reason that people believe that they need to be in cities is for quote-unquote opportunity, and that opportunity almost inevitably is some way and form of making money. But you, you don't really want the money. You want the freedom. And I find it amazing how many people that live in cities, live in cities, if you offered them a chance to not do so, and have everything they wanted, they would take it in an instant. So let's start off with, why did men create cities? I, I talked about this a little bit in the intro, but why did men create cities in the first place? Number one reason was to centralize power. If you think of some of the first cities, they were the, 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 the capitals of kingdoms. They were often walled, and there would be a palace somewhere within the walls. Another set of walls to protect the ruling class from the non-ruling class. But then the ruling class maintained both sets of walls to protect people of the city from anybody that would come do them harm. Most of the people who would come do them harm were not, you know, nomads that didn't have any resources to attack a city of any size. They were basically the armies of other cities who wanted more shit, more control. But really what that all centralized itself around was control of people. Sure, you have some of your serfs off in the distance or whatever, but you want the majority of people right under your thumb. Right under your thumb. You make the serfs produce grain. Now, see, that's when everything changed. When mankind figured out what agriculture was, man created what we call civilization, which is far from civilized. Horticulture is a natural thing for humans to do. Horticulture is the culture of plants. It's as natural as breathing air for humans to do. Agriculture does not mean the culture of plants. It does not mean the growing of grain. It literally means agri-field. Field culture is the culture of fields. It is turning a meadow into a monoculture. And once the ruling class figured out that this could be done. They went from being you know, priests or shamans or chiefs to kings. To kings and lords and ladies and knights and dukes and duchesses. Because now the bounty could be harvested and dried and stored. And once you could store it, you could put it in a place and you could defend it. You can control its distribution. And you could make up a grain bill, which is a piece of paper that says, for this piece of paper, you can have this much grain. And now you had paper money. And the entire system of human control is based on that. And today we've retraced, uh, re replaced a grain bill with a debt bill. But the system still works the same. The primary purpose is to centralize power. The next purpose is to centralize production. To centralize production. We can move the majority of production of everything but raw product into the city, then we have better oversight over it, better control over it. And the next reason, to justify taxation. How do you justify any real heavy taxation on a self-sufficient people that don't need you to do anything for them. What do you sell me on other than my roads? As long as there's roads, 
And, and that can be handled through the commons that we'll talk about in a little bit. What the hell do I need from you? If I have a little holding and I trade with my neighbors and my neighbors produce some things and I produce other things and maybe we want some things from some other places, but you're back to the roads there. As long as we have a strong, true, strong local economy and that economy is based mainly on fulfilling the needs of the people that live there, what do I need you for? Why do you think taxes are lower out in the sticks? There's less services provided because there's less services needed of a centralized authoritative type. But what happens when we move people to a city where they cannot possibly feed themselves? It's impossible. The city of New York could never feed itself. I don't care if you put gardens on every rooftop. I don't care if every other skyscraper turned into a vertical farm. There is no way that you take and cram 8 million people into 300 square miles and have those people feed themselves. There's no way they can deal with their waste. There's no way. You can't even... You can talk about a green economy all you want, zero waste all you want. You cannot cram 8 million people into 300 square miles and even have them deal with their own shit. It's impossible. And New York City is an extreme example. But every other city is some layer of... some, some shade of gray... Of, of New York City being the black, of the ultimate example of that. So now I got all these people, and they know, in their heart, they know because they're not living like a bear. They're living like a cow, being milked, being partially domesticated. And every single system in that city is designed to further their domestication. Why do you think we are womanizing boys? Why do you think we are feminizing male youth? Because the male is naturally more resistant to being domesticated than the female, and that's true of almost every species. It's great to have a male hunting dog. It really is. They generally have greater agility and endurance than a female dog. And I'm talking same, same breed, same line. Two Britney Spaniels. But it's easier to train the female. She's more submissive. That's not a judgment. It's just true. It's easy. As a dog trainer, I can tell you it is easier for me to train a female. She'll work harder to please me. The male will make me work harder to earn his trust to the point where he will choose to please me. And humans work the same way. We're not dogs, but we work the same way. It is much harder to force a male of our species to comply. So once you've done as much as you can with a system of control that is completely based off the city-state, and the males have been domesticated as much as you can get them, you've been able to further domesticate the females, and you don't like the disparity. You want more power because you're a sociopath. The only thing left is to start feminizing the male. Whether you do it through browbeating, whether you do it through indoctrination, masters as education, or whether you do it through chemicals. And whether those chemicals are intentional or they are just a byproduct of your stupid system, once you realize it's happening, hey, let's run with it. Let's make these little boys into little bitches so they'll do what the state tells them to do. And if you don't think cities result in that, go get me, go get me 20 kids from any city, especially in a place where those kids are what you would call the good kids, and go get me 20 kids 
that grew up on that are grown up on farms, and you tell me which one is more domesticated. And at that point, your argument dies. That's why the cities exist: centralized power, centralized production, justify taxation, and domesticate the human species to 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 drive the feral nature of a human. And we think of feral as a negative thing, like a feral hog, that's bad. Is it? Or is it just a pig being a pig? This is just, I mean, honestly, if I buy property and it's got feral hogs on it, I'm pretty happy about it. I know how to design around that limitation, and I have free pork. There's nothing wrong with that pig being feral. That pig is a better pig than the pig you have in a sty. It's more piggy. And the way Joel Salatin would describe it, it's expressing its pigness. Feral's not bad. Feral is natural. We are feral. We are a feral species that's been domesticated. And the city is the mean by which that happens. And we compare it to how humans have traditionally lived. Understand that, they, that most people claim that civilization as we know it's about 10,000 years old. And For most of the planet, as we track that, it's it's more in line that civilization as we know it has been around in significant, sustainable quantities of some sort, meaning it persisted for about 6,000 years. But to the level that it's taken over that we see today, it's only a few hundred years. That most of the world, even a few hundred years ago, was not quote unquote civilized. People still, the majority of people on the planet were still what we refer today as indigenous peoples. First peoples for whatever geography that they were in. It was Europe and Asia that was civilized. And they did some very uncivilized things with that civilization. But the majority of of, of history, of humans, of homo sapiens, we lived in small settlements. Small settlements. And not big settlement with a bunch of little settlements around it. Small settlement far away, another settlement far away, another settlement. Populations were highly controlled through various means. Those small settlements only got so big because there was only so many resources. This is the original third ethic of permaculture setting limits to population and consumption. We have this territory that we hunt and fish and we grow our little crops on and it can only produce enough for a few hundred people so we can't become a few thousand people. And when people wanted to become part of that settlement, if there were wanderers who wanted to join it was, it was, a, it was a, a tough sell. Do we take you in? What do you bring that we don't already have? What benefit do we get by bringing you in and sharing resources that we know are limited? There was no nobody was like, "Hey, you know what we need to do? We need to triple the population of our settlement." That wasn't a thing. For the majority of the time that humans lived, any space that wasn't a controlled territory was generally considered by all settlements, all tribes, all groups, however you want to call them, as common. Meaning there was a certain area that we kind of controlled and we defended and we protected and we looked after and we cared about. And then over here is another group that does that. And there was some space, like a neutral zone in between. 
And there was no conflict about the use of those resources. And there was more like a zone five or maybe even a zone six in this world of permaculture. Where, hey, if I see you there gathering wood, I don't give a shit and you don't bother me either. On top of that, wars were rare and they were always short. Since your settlement might have a few hundred people at most, if you went to war with another settlement, the odds that you had to go were pretty damn high. And there was no such thing as acceptable losses because if you sent a force off to war of 100 men and only 50 came back, it was devastating to you. War was personal. And when war is personal, it's infrequent and brief. And only when no other... No other alternative exists. And in most cases, another alternative exists. Resource use was not exceeded because it fixed itself. If you exceeded the resource use, you didn't have any more shit and you died. And you figured that out real quick. And the whole idea of, well, since we're out of resources here, we'll move over here. That's where the few wars that happened came from. And eventually that was a bad idea. So people developed systems of not exceeding the resource use. And disasters were naturally mitigated. If there was an earthquake and your grass hut fell on you, you were probably okay. If you built a stone structure and it did fall on you and squish you, since there was only a couple hundred people living in your little place, the people that were living 50 miles away, nothing happened to them. See how that works? This is how people lived. If there was a breakout of disease before high-density settlements, it was very hard for that disease to propagate and spread. Since most of the diseases that we deal with that have a high spread rate are what are called zoontotic diseases. Zoontotic means they come from animals. Smallpox comes from cattle. Okay, Flu comes from pigs and chickens. Until we domesticated those animals, we didn't get those diseases. We didn't coexist long enough in one place for that disease to make the evolutionary leap to get into us and infect us. But when there was some sort of contagious illness, even if it completely wiped out Jacktown, Tomville was just fine. See how that works? Now, we're not going to go back to that. That's not what I'm making a case for today. All I'm saying is all of the problems of modern civilization reached their summit, their peak, in a city. And the bigger the city, the more that's true. Look at the death rate from COVID. The more rural, the lower the percentage of people. Not the lower the number. Well, the number makes sense. Surely in a place with 500 people, you're not going to have any, as many people die of COVID as a place with 50 million people. That's obvious. But the percentage. Th these diseases... This was like, when I said that would happen, and it ended up being right about it, it wasn't because I'm a genius. These diseases have always had a higher penetration, the higher the density of population. And, and Now, all this negative, what do we get? What do we get from great big cities? The most common reason people give for living in cities is opportunity, which means I can make money by being in a city. But what do you want to do with that money? It amazes me how many people live in cities and their goal is to retire in the country, and they never do. They never do. It's literally the hamster wheel. 
I'm running. I'm going. I'm going. Yeah, and I got a little wire hooked up to that hamster wheel, a little magnet wrapped around it, and you make just a little bit of energy for me. I'm the company you work for. And sometimes a lot of those companies, they're their own hamster wheel. That entrepreneur, is he thinks he's, he's getting all of the benefit of you running like a hamster, and basically his hamster wheel is being spun by his multiple hamster wheels that's still going upstream. And a few at the top reap the benefit of all that. And so many of those people, they vacation where? Out in the country. They vacation on the beach. Their, their whole goal is to get away from it all. We even have, we have sayings about getting away, get away from it all. But yet we live in cities so that we can get away from it all. So we live in cities so that we can get away from it all. So we live in cities. It's, it's a rat, they, why do you think they call it a rat race? It's a maze. And it's very important to the state, not only that you be in a maze, but they don't even care what maze you're in. Please choose your maze, though. Once you're in the maze, they don't care. Now you're a demographic. Once you decide you don't want to go to college, and you're going to be, be a high school dropout, if you're going to stay in a city, it's very obvious what demographic you're in. It's very obvious. There'll be some exceptions to it. But it's pretty odd. You go to school, well, what kind of college did you go to? And what kind of degree did you get? You just became a demographic. You picked your maze. And how hard is it to determine where the rat will come out of the maze if there's only one place that maze ends? You have two, two places, two things that are going to happen. The rat either dies on his way through the maze or he comes out at this end. Now I can manage a, a, a population. Now I can do central planning. See how great that is? Yay! And it's not that when you live out in Sheboyganville that you're not still subject to that. You're just, the more you live in the higher density, the more you're subject to it. The more control you cede over to the state. And here's a really sad thing. The number one reason people really live in cities their whole lives is they're born there. So they don't know any better. They're born there. Most people in a the city, they, they were either they were born there Or they lived somewhere that was a small town, and they went there for an opportunity. So they were born there into an opportunity, found an opportunity, don't think they can leave. And every small town person you ever meet that ends up in a city, every single one of them, they may not want to go back to the small town they left, but they want to go back to small town life. I shouldn't say everyone. I hate when people say everybody wants or everybody... No, 99.9%. That's what they want. So why are you putting all your energy and effort to live in a place you don't really want to be? Now, I'm going to say something here before I go on, because I'm going to keep kicking this horse really hard. And, and when it dies, I'm going to beat the shit out of it while it's dead on the ground. If you like living in cities, go ahead. I'm not putting you down. Then you better understand all this so that you can execute some level of a mitigation strategy while you're there. Because what I'm talking about is one great big mitigation strategy. We, there's no place left in the world you can totally get away from this shit. It doesn't exist. So part of my mitigation strategy is not to be subject to those systems of control. That's why I live in a place that's unincorporated. City's right over there. And there's, I'm telling you right now, guys, you have to understand how big a deal 
My choice of where I live, of being just one mile further away, really is. There are books, huge, thick binders of regulations and codes that apply to people that live a mile away from me and do not apply to me. All of that regulation, all of that encumbrance, none of it applies to me. It doesn't mean I have total freedom, but it means all of those things, nope, that's nice. I have contractors out here to do work for me. They're like, well, we're going to need to pull a permit. No, you're not. And at least you know, most of the people that, that run businesses like that around here are familiar with, oh, you're out in the county. Yep, oh, okay, never mind. That just took a whole shit. Like, your bid just went down 20% because there's so much shit I don't have to deal with. I mean, that that is how much freedom can be obtained by moving one mile, let alone a hundred. That's what walking to freedom is really all about. And today, like I said in my opening, you can work from almost anywhere. You really can. And if you're really good at what you do, you can somehow leverage that. So if what you really, if you don't want to live out in the country, if you don't want to live outside of the city, then that's fine. But if you do, then why aren't you? Why are you waiting until you're old and all fucked up and broke down and beaten and ravaged with modern illnesses that are based on lifestyle by living the very lifestyle that causes them so that one day you can have and one day has such a propensity to become never? What do you really get in cities? In my opinion, you get less freedom in life and business. There's so many things that I do here that I have more freedom than, a, again, a person a mile away. And, and a person 10 miles away in actually Fort Worth, I have even, like, the person a mile down the road from me has double the freedom they do, and I have double the freedom that person does. Does that mean I have all the freedom I should have? No. But, again, a 10-mile move drastically cuts my freedom. You pay more taxes. There's a whole list of taxes I don't pay by living here. Because whenever there's a big book of things you have to do, there's a big list of taxes that support the enforcement of that big book. That's how it works. Lower air quality. You can, you can literally tell the difference when you just breathe the air here versus Fort Worth, and Fort Worth is not an industrial city. More pollution in general. Less wildlife. Greater risk of disease and more violent crime. Oh, yippee, sign me the hell up. I mean, again, I just think, you know, the, the time for getting out of there has come. And it, it, it's, it's literally screaming to us. Remember my theory that, that viruses like COVID may in fact be evolutionaries? That's their function? To correct imbalance? When some virus wipes out half your plants and the other half survive, you don't get upset about it. You propagate that seed because clearly there was an imbalance. And now you've got an adaptation. Well, maybe when you live counter to what is innately human, which I think high density is, eventually nature sends a virus. we got to correct this shit. And I'll tell you what, COVID is not enough to fix it. And I know fixing it's horrible. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not wishing for this. I'm saying it is a natural consequence. So what's next? 
All I know is I don't want to be in a high-density population if that turns out to be right. It scares the hell out of me. So what are the options? And I really break them down into three. Three options for getting out of the city as far as what does the place you settle in look like if you're truly out of the city. One is what I call the urban-rural fringe. That's a nine-mile farm. That's where I live. I live in the urban-rural fringe. I do not consider the people ten miles down the road from me that live in a high-density suburb of Fort Worth to be out of the city. They deal with as much or more of the problems from the city than a lot of the people that live in the city. Maybe not so much with the riots right now, but day-to-day, as a matter of course, what did I say about the suburbs? Who are the CAFOs? Who are the CAFOs? The city's a slaughterhouse. And think of it, it just makes a better analogy that way, but think of it more like you're a milk cow. You work, you live in the suburbs where you get fattened up, and every day you go down to the milking barn and you get bled a little and milked a little. If you're a bull, they bleed you, and if you're a cow, they milk you. That's, that's human life in the suburbs. When I say urban rural fringe, I mean a place like I have. I can see the city almost from here. I can access the city. There are some good things. There are some nice things about some cities. There's some entertainment value there. There's some cool restaurants, you know. There's some resources that are more social than they are physical, but they're there. And the urban, or urban rural fringe lets you access them, but it, it, if you are not, you're not urban rural fringe, unless you are exempt from the primary controls of that city, and if those primary controls are replicating in something called an HOA, you, you might as well be within the confines of the city. If you move outside the city, but you're still in a high density settlement, there's places, for instance, over by where my my nephew lives. That when you there, there's enough of a you know rolling hills, that there's places where you can kind of see the houses out to the horizon, and it looks like a sea of housing. To me, that's still living in the city. They're technically further from the city, right, as far as the downtown area than I am, but they're living as city dwellers. So you got to break the density of settlement if, if you're going to have the benefit of living outside of what we're calling the city here. So there's that oral, urban rural fringe. That's as close as you can be and have the freedom. And then there's what I call the true small town. And in my notes, I refer to that as Sheboyganville. Sheboyganville, for those that are new, is a place I invented in my head. It only exists in my head. And it actually comes from a movie with Adam Sandler in it um, called Mr. Deeds. And there's a lady pulling a trick on him. She invents a town. It's like West Chesterton Fieldville or something like that. So not wanting to use the exact same thing. Years and years ago, all the way back in 2008, I created Sheboyganville. But somebody told me there actually is a Sheboyganville. And that's kind of what happens in that movie, too. It's kind of ironic. But Sheboyganville-type small towns is not, well, you see, we got this big city right here. And then we got a whole ass load of people that work in that city, who live out here in this, and they're far enough away that they're not a suburb. They're another town. But they're, it, it, when they, what happens is that person will be somewhere, and they'll say, well, where do you live? And they'll say, Louisville. And they'll say, where's that? And they'll say, Texas. 
First, well, where is that? Well, it's really Dallas. See, that's that's not Sheboyganville. Sheboyganville is when you look at the map and you got this, you know, state highway or something like that. And the next town that actually has people in it is Sheboyganville. And it's a pretty good distance before the next version of the same type of town. That's where you, and, and, and when you when you go there, people don't live stacked up on top of each other in an unnatural way. They might have a little town center and whatnot, but people generally live separated by a reasonable distance. That doesn't mean you can't walk to your neighbor's house, but it also means if you piss out your bedroom window, you don't piss on the wall of your neighbor's house just to be blunt. So that's the Sheboyganville approach. And then we have what I call the Josh Thompson approach, or the sticks. Remember Josh Thompson's song, Way Out Here? That's out in the middle of the boonies. That's where you maybe you can walk to your neighbor's house, but it takes a while. And maybe you can walk to your neighbor's house pretty quick, but your next neighbor, that's, that's, that's the guy that lives on the mountain or lives way out in farm country. That's the guy. There's parts of Colorado I've been to, for instance. You're on a dirt road. You get to an intersection. And it doesn't say, like, Rural Route 3. There's a whole bunch of signs. And they're, like, last names of families. And if you're looking for the Wilsons, they're down that way, and so are the Franklins, and so are the Smiths. But over this way is the Thompsons. And you actually have people's names as street signs. That's way out here. That's getting way, way out here. And there's further out than that. And those are the three you have to pick from. And, you know, I think that you can pick any one of those and further your freedom. And then you have to pick the one that works best for you. But I'm going to tell you this. If you pick something that's like urban-rural fringe, but you still work in the middle of a great big city every day, it's a start. It moves in the right direction. But if you really want freedom, you have to you have to work harder to get away from that. You have to figure out what you're going to do. And I think there's a lot of different ways this can happen beyond the individual approach. There's more of a community approach. And, and I've had my... My attempt at trying to create, you know, the classic like permaculture community or something like that. And I think it's very difficult to do in our world. It puts too much control in the hands of one individual. And it is a very difficult thing to do. But I think there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. And one of them, I think, would work like this you, you create small settlements of like minded people. And that can either be done by reclaiming old towns or creating new ones. As much as I don't like government, in this day and age, if you want to protect yourself, you almost need a town that exists solely for the purpose of, hey, we're, we're, we're a town here. Don't be getting your grubby eyes on us. Because my one thing, I, one thing that would make me leave this place is if any of these little towns around me decided, hey, we're just going to annex them. You know, short of getting up on my roof with my AR-15, and I realize that probably won't work. There's not a lot I can do if they if they just make the decision they're doing it. I tried to pick a place where, if I were them, would I annex this place? Hell no, I wouldn't. They'll never get back what it'll cost them to do it. I looked for a place that wasn't only unincorporated, but, but if I'm a tax assessor for Lakeside, which is the closest town, I'm like, if we... 
annex them. We got to do all this shit for them, and there's not enough of them to pay for them. And there's not going to be a major development anywhere there, because all this land can't be subdivided, so it ain't worth it. See, I just understand that humans work on self-interest, and government entities work on self-interest, and annexing an area that costs more than it generates for you is not worth doing. So that's why I picked here. But, I mean, you, you, if you go out and you build something significant, and there's anything around you, the possibility of it grabbing you. So it, it potentially, anyway, I think you have to at least be open to creating some kind of a town or finding an old town that's basically falling apart and putting it back together. But you want it to be a Sheboyganville-type town if you're going to take this approach. Because we, we humans, as much as I don't like cities and high-density settlements, we are social creatures. We are naturally tribal. And that word has gotten to be pretty negative lately because there's so much political tribalism. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. Picking one psychopath to lead you over another does not make you in a tribe in the way I'm talking about it with someone else because they pick the same psychopath. But the, the general rule of humans is most of us actually do want most of the same things. We're just because we want those things, we're easily manipulated into believing that they can be provided to us by somebody else. And whoever has them has taken them some way from us or stolen our opportunity. That's how political tribalism, political control works. I'm talking about traditional tribalism. And then you build an economy on what you would call a local first mindset. That you kind of have a, not a contract, but a pact. A contract is a legally enforceable document. A pact is a general understanding. Hey, you know what? If I need something, I'm going to go down to Bill's hardware store. And if Bill has it, I'm going to buy it from Bill. I'm not going to order it online if Bill has it. Now, if Bill's charging five times what I can order it for, then I'm probably not going to buy it from Bill. Bill's in a wrong, Bill is either charging too much or Bill's in a wrong business. But if, if Bill's going to charge a 10, 15% premium, I know that if I spend that money in my community, that my, I will net gain by doing so. You have that level of an understanding. We, we buy local first. And we buy from other communities second. We create a system where common areas tend to be wild. So instead of having a park that needs a lot of maintenance, i.e. taxes, government, control, police systems, big books of regulation, the common areas just need to be parks that are basically there's woods you can go into. It doesn't take much to maintain some paths, some hiking paths and things like that. It doesn't take much to maintain something that would be the local equivalent of a state game land for hunters and foragers and people to fish. And if you are going to have managed common areas that are more park-like, then you try to create a system where they're managed mostly through volunteers. And you'd say, well, yeah, yeah, it didn't work. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. I've seen it. And most of the places where you have a park that's managed by volunteers, that park's a lot nicer of a place than a place where a city manages it. Because people have a stake in it. 
And again, you, you, you go back to what worked in the past for humans. Those communities have somewhat of a planned maximum size. And you don't have to do that by saying, look, we're only ever going to let 100 houses be built here. You can do that in very simple ways by, by things like, well, you know, maybe we even have some areas for people that need a smaller piece of land that's a little bit like a kind of town center with some more density, like a village center. And then once you're outside of that, you can do that through a very simple minimum lot size. If you just make people have more space or create buffer zones that we just kind of charter into the town as common property, then you have a reduced population because there's only so many places to put a house. And when you get to a certain size, instead of being a psychopath that constantly needs to grow and have more because you want to play the systems game, why don't you incentivize the next community just like yours by providing your template that worked and say, hey, there's some space over there. Go over there and make your own community. And then you guys trade local first, and we'll trade local first. And when there's something that we can't do locally well, we'll trade in our community rather than trade with some company in China. And that doesn't mean China's bad, and it doesn't mean we don't ever buy anything from China. But it does mean we go local first, community second, nation third, international fourth. Guess what? That's chapter 14 of the Permaculture Design Manual. There's a diagram that shows you how to do it. Right down to having things like local currencies. But I'm going to tell you something. That's a good idea. It's doable. Don't wait for it. Take action. Go somewhere now that's like what you want. Build your life the way you want it now. If you love being in the middle of Manhattan in spite of all this shit going on, for all God's purposes, stay there. I don't care. I'm not putting you down. I'm telling you, you better be aware of the systems of control, because if you're not, you exist in a dairy farm, and you're a cow. Unless you're very conscious of that fact, you will be fully domesticated. Why do you think... If we look at the political spectrum, I'm not a Republican. But in general, the more liberal a person votes, the bigger the government they want. Why do you think that the cities, by and large, vote liberal, and everybody outside of the city, by and large, votes conservative? Because the more domesticated you are, the more you want the farmer to do for you, stupid. That's why. It's not a mystery. And it does, it, you know, it crosses all racial and income demographics. It ain't just, well, well, rich guys vote Republican, poor people vote Democrat. That's not how it works. Take your ass to Westchester, Pennsylvania. It's a suburb of Philadelphia. Very, very rich, mostly white people live there, and they vote very heavily Democrat. Very heavily so. Why? Because the more you, time you spend on the farm, the more you expect the farmer to do for you. When I put my ducks to bed at night, they're domestic ducks. They're domesticated ducks. I go out there, they all start quacking. They generally just start going in the house. If I have some duck anarchy on my hand, they start acting like wild ducks, and we don't really want to go to bed yet. I go, get in the house. And they all line up, and they go in there. They listen. They're domesticated. Now, ask yourself a question. 
If I went off into a swamp somewhere and found a whole bunch of mallard ducks swimming around, about half my ducks are rowans, they're basically big fat mallards. And I started telling those ducks what to do. What are they going to do? Are they going to listen to me? No, they're going to fly away. Like, screw this guy. But if I start feeding them every day, and they become conditioned that I mean food, and every day that I walk into that swamp, I walk a little less into that swamp, and I feed them a little bit more food, and I start taking a step back every time I'm feeding. And pretty soon, the ducks are coming up out of the swamp onto my farm to be fed, and I can take those wild ducks, and in just a few months' time, I can have them go in a house every night and lay eggs for me and do what I tell them to do. But when I get up in the morning and I open that door and I let them out, they'll all sit out in front of my door and they'll quack and they'll beg for food. And they won't leave me alone. They will insist that I feed them. They will ins And they will get angry with me if I don't feed them. And if other ducks come around that they see as a threat to their food, they'll literally have a duck riot and they'll attack them. I've seen it happen. Sometimes when you bring new birds in, it takes a while for the ducks to understand, hey, these guys are part of the domesticated flock too. I've seen a duck have baby ducks, her babies get half grown, lay another clutch of eggs and, and, and brood them, and when the next group of babies come, the first group of babies attacks them. Like a mob. Like a riot. You know why? Because you have a wild animal that's been domesticated halfway. Those babies haven't fully accepted flock logic yet. That's you in a city. I know it sucks, but it's true. And the more you stack people together, the more it looks like a CAFO, the more domesticated they become. And the more you have to pacify them so they don't kill each other. If ducks fight in the wild, it doesn't, the ducks like fight over it like there's more acorns here. Well, this group of wood ducks just goes over these other oaks and they work their shit out. Turkeys fight in the wild. No, they don't kill each other. They have room where they can spread out. Domestic, domestic young turkeys. I've had them kill each other because they're half domesticated. You see how that works? Why do you have rice? You have half domesticated feral animals being packed into high densities. And that's why every single system is to de designed to make us more compliant and more docile and more effeminate. Tell me it's not true. So what's the solution? Well, I think not for everybody. At least I tell you how to live. But for most of you, figure out how to get away from it. Figure out how to get your kids away from it. You know, let, let's just put it this way. If I gave you $10 million dollars, And I didn't keep doing it in the Bezos experiment we talked about earlier to see if you're a psychopath. I just gave you $10 million. Where would you live? Would you live where you are now? If the answer is no, then what you should try to do is figure out where you would live and what it would look like. And even if you can't have that, everything in your life should be directed toward designing the ability to live in the place most like that that you can. And I think most of you will find that you can do better than you're doing if you challenge yourself with that, if you engage the mental computer. Computer, 
how do I live more like this than I do right now? You'll get answers. If you're not too afraid, if you haven't been so domesticated that you're afraid to use that natural, innate ability that humans have to ask the question, to run that program, you'll find answers. And I want to explain this to you in a way. I had somebody whining to me on social media, a person I generally like, whining to me today. When I said the protesting doesn't do crap in a video that I did. That person said, well, if protesting works, other than designing your own life, what does? I said, no, other than that. No, the other that you gave is the only thing that does work. And then he said, well, rate up until you do that. And the man comes and takes the department of making you sad, comes and takes it all away from you. And I know that this person ain't never done shit that's been taken away by the man. Ain't got a damn thing the state ever took from him because he ain't never done enough yet to have anything to be taken away. But yet it's the excuse for the inaction. And I liken it to being a prisoner of war. If I was a prisoner, you were a prisoner of war. Someplace in that big camp, like Hogan's Heroes. You know, not, not some of the stuff that goes on in, in, in the Mideast today. More conventional prisoner of war type camp. And Hogan's Heroes is not really where I'm going. That's just sprung to my mind. Prisoner of war camps were never that um, fun. Right? But you know what I'm talking about. You're being held captive as a prisoner of war. And there's hundreds of others from your side in that prison. And let's say people start trying to escape, because it's kind of your duty to escape if you can, if you're a prisoner of war, by the way. And, and, and next month, 20 guys attempt escape. And 18 get out. There's two types of people within that group of prisoners when they see that happen. There's the, the It's actually the minority that will focus on the 18 that got away and say, shit, you know what? Odds of escape are pretty high. Maybe I should start planning my escape and figuring out, looking for that hole in the wire that I can get through. The majority actually will look at the two that got caught and punished for it. And in a prisoner of war camp, those guys might get shot. And you're still better off focusing on the 18 and trying to learn from what they did so that when you make your move, you don't become one of the two. Well, in this scenario, planning your escape and taking action toward your escape has nowhere near the consequences. But it's even worse. Some of those people that are the majority that will focus on the two that got caught and shot will blame the 18 that got away for how bad they have it. If those guys had just stayed here, it would have been better than it is. So much so that when they see someone trying to get away, they should be helping, they'll say, hey, he's trying to get away. There's so much of that mentality right now in our society. That's how they control you. That's how they keep you domesticated. You're the chickens fighting over the bowl of food when there's enough for everybody. But they're still fighting over it. At least the chicken has an excuse. His brain is the size of a damn pea. What's your excuse? It's your conditioning. It's your programming. Get out. It's not that hard. People do it every day. And if you don't succeed the first time... They're not going to shoot you for it. 
You can try as many times and in as many stages as you want to. No one's going to see you making a run for the wire. If it takes you a lot, if you don't have cutters, so you just can't cut the wire and get out, and you have to dig a tunnel under the wire, and it takes a while, no one's going to stop you. People might tell you you're wasting your time digging that tunnel. But if you were in that prisoner of war camp and you looked in, there's a shovel sitting over there against the fence. And you walked up and started digging a hole under the fence. And the guard said, hey, stupid, you're wasting your time. The war will be over by the time you tunnel under there. Put that shovel down, moron. And then they went back to like, you know, playing with each other's ass or something. And they didn't shoot you. Would you put the shovel down? Or would you be like, I have nothing else to do. I'm not going to dig. Guess what? As stupid as it sounds, most people would put the shovel down and say, yeah, they're right. They're right. There's more opportunity here than there is out there. If Hell, if I, if I dig under that wire, run off in those woods, start trying to head back to my side, it's going to take a while to get there. I'm going to have to feed myself. Well, the smart guy in that situation would save a little bit of his lunch every day. You see how this analogy works? How perfect it is? Not bad for something a redneck duck farmer came up with on the fly, pun intended, right? So that I have enough food that I can live off the land and off my reserves until I get to where I can establish my new life. Most people won't do it. Put the shovel down. They'll even fill the hole back in. So the guy gets, ah, shit, put the shovel down. And the guard says, hey, stupid, fill that hole in since you ain't got nothing else to do. Lunch is at two today. Yeah, they're right. Start filling the hole back in. I know that sounds dumb. But that, when somebody tells me I would love to get out of the city, but I can't, that's all I see. I see Carter from Hogan's Heroes filling the hole back in in the tunnel that they use to get in and out of the camp. Of course you can. There's opportunity everywhere. You can communicate from anywhere. You can work from anywhere. You can live anywhere you want to. You're making a choice to live where you do. The only thing is, many people are making that choice without being conscious of the fact that it's the choice that they're making. So again, if you like it there, don't take, don't take this wrong. You live where you want. I want, for people, above all things, freedom. And that includes the freedom to choose where and how they live. But I just know for many of you that tune into a show like this, what you want is impossible where you are. And it's innately possible, maybe just down the road a little bit. Get out of the cities. Time has long since come. With that, we have ended another episode. I want to remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I do not have an item of the day for you today. Because uh, I pre-recorded this show on Tuesday, actually, to try to get ahead. i got a vacation coming up, and I need to do a bunch of rewinds. So I'm just going to remind you, you can always help us by doing your online shopping at TSPAS. I'm also going to remind you, you can support us by becoming a member. And the amazing sale that I did for the COVID lockdowns, which went way too long, ends Friday. So you can get membership for 25 bucks. On Friday, tomorrow, you can get membership from 25 bucks, And on Saturday, it's $50 again. So if you've been thinking about becoming a member, become a member. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today was a song that was supposed to be Tuesday. I had Jeff Lawton on. I took the song of the day, then 
for, for today, which was Carry On, and I moved it there because I said that really fit that show. And I promised you that today's show, which would have been Tuesday's show if I didn't work Jeff in, that John Adam had worked his psychic magic again and picked a song that could not be more perfect for the show in question. You want to hear it? You want to know what it is? It's by the animals. It's a very old song. Older than me. It's how old it is, and I'm old. And the song is called We Gotta Get Out of This Place. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. One thing I know is true If you did before your time is due I know Watch my daddy in bed at night Watch his habit turn and crazy He's been working and slaving his life away Oh yes I You know it too.